Good morning, Cornerstone. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. I'm Sherman Glenn, and I am privileged to be here today to share with you uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. Among the chaos of today's world, it's my hope that we can enjoy God's presence today. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This week, in our study of the fruit of the Spirit, we have come to the halfway point of the simple nine. And before dealing with the fruit of kindness, I would like to pause and briefly review the circumstances that surrounded Paul in addressing the church at Galatia. The church at Galatia evidently was mainly composed of Jewish Christians called Judaizers. And they came from living under the yoke of slavery that the law placed upon them to be righteous to a point of, more importantly, living with the freedom that Christ gave them from the Mosaic law. But someone among them had reintroduced the concept of circumcision as an obligation to keep the law and thus be justified as righteous by the law and not by grace. And Paul was not happy about this turn of events from grace to depending on the law and traditions and statutes for justification. All of 621 of them that they had to keep. So Paul vigorously offers a defense for the New Testament truth that people are justified by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Nothing more and nothing less. And that they are not sanctified by legalistic works, but by the obedience that comes from faith and God's work for them, in them, and through them, by the grace and power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Thus Paul begins chapter 5 with his message. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Because of the law, you are bound to sin. To wear a yoke of slavery is what Paul is telling them. And under the law, you really had no choice but to sin. Um, the victory was uh, gained by sacrifice. You would sin, then you would sacrifice. Then you would go back to the law, and you would sin again, and then you would sacrifice. And the sin-sacrifice cycle was broken when Christ came and intervened so that you did not have to continually keep offering sacrifices over and over again for your sin, that the sacrifice was, uh, was given once and for all. Reminds me of Paul talking to the Corinthians where he says, O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Judaizers, don't go back to living under the law, but enjoy your freedom in Christ 
but use it wisely. Free you are to choose to not sin because Christ set you free through the sinless life of Christ who gave his life for you, suffered the consequences for you, and overcame the sting of death for you so that you might be free, justified by faith to be righteous, to have an intimate relationship with the righteous, holy Lord God Almighty. Because God set them free through Christ, they were not only free to choose to not sin, but they are also free to choose to sin. Paul warns the Galatians that you were called to freedom, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Healthy relationships come with freedom of choices. We have our children and we give them choices, teaching them to make good choices as opposed to bad choices. Um, in a marriage, we have a, in a healthy marriage, there's the freedom to stay in the marriage or to choose to leave the marriage. If we make a bad choice, we suffer the consequences. If we make a good choice, we enjoy the consequences. We have uh, the choice to eat broccoli or not. Those are choices that uh, make for a healthy relationship. And Paul says that God not only sent his son to fulfill the law so that they could be free from the Mosaic law to have a relationship with him, but that his son Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to lead them and empower them to be victorious over the flesh. The spirit and the flesh are in opposition to each other. Paul talks about this and that he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What he is saying is they are mutually exclusive that you cannot be led by the Spirit and be um, uh, uh, in the Spirit and serve the flesh and the, do the deeds of the flesh at the same time, that they war against each other. They are in opposition to each other. It's almost as if you would say, um, I can be patient and have outbursts of anger. Those don't fit together, they clash with each other. And that's what Paul is saying here, is you can't do one and the other at the same time. It's do one or the other. And the choice is yours because you're free in Christ to choose not to sin. And you're empowered to not sin. But you also have the opportunity to choose to sin. If you're under the law, you have no choice but to sin because the law is the power of sin. So when we come to this uh, point of living in the Spirit, 
and being in the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, uh, we look at the Spirit, say, kindness, and then the other eight fruits of the Spirit, then they do not exist apart from each other, but they have complete um, overlapping with each other. And you can't have kindness that we're talking about today without having goodness. You can't have kindness without having love. You can't have kindness without gentleness. You can't have kindness without joy. So how then shall we live victoriously? Since the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are mutually exclusive, then we exercise our freedom in Christ by exercising freedom from the law. By faith in Christ, living in the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and empowered through the Spirit. Now, let's take a look at kindness, which is the fifth manifestation of the Spirit in our lives. Paul addresses the Galatians in verses 13 and 14, where he says, For you are called to freedom, brethren only, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And from this second half of the verse, the whole law, but, but through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and the same you should love your neighbor as yourself is where we're going to draw our definition of kindness. Kindness, I look at, comes in three parts from this statement that Paul makes. Uh, the first part is an interesting part to me because it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, implying that if you don't love yourself, you're not in a position to be healthy enough to love your neighbor. And if you are being fulfilled in the law, it will lead to service, which is the second part, and it will be motivated, your service will be motivated by love. So here's my definition of kindness. So listen carefully, I'll say it twice, uh, because we're going to um, kind of Take it apart and put it back together again. Kindness is careful consideration of another that leads to service motivated by love. Once again, kindness is careful consideration of another that leads to service motivated by love. The first thing that we realize is if we don't have kindness, we can't give kindness. And I think that's why it says we need to love ourselves first so that we can 
understand what kindness is about. And uh, from there, we can begin to see how kindness is built in our life and how we can express kindness uh, to others. And careful consideration, therefore, of our own life is important first. That allows God to remove the faults and the, the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups uh, from our own life first, and then to develop the discerning vision into your life before serving others' lives. Some of you will remember a few months ago, Pastor Greg um, had a sermon about uh, uh, Matthew 7, where he talked about judging. And that word judging or criticizing uh, has that, uh, that sense to it. And uh, let's, let's talk about that as it fits into kindness and loving yourself first. Um, because I think we need to learn how to love ourselves, then we can learn how to serve others motivated by love. Let me read the portion of Scripture, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge or criticize so that you will not be critiqued. For in the way that you judge, you will be critiqued. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that's in your mate's eye, your brother's eye, your sister's eye, your children's eye, your employer's eye, your, your employee's eye, but you don't notice the two-by-four, if you remember, Pastor Greg had a two-by-four, lodged in your own eye or how can you say to your mate or to your friend or the clerk at the store let me take the speck out of your eye and behold you've got a two by four lodged in your own eye you hypocrite you pretender you mask one you phony first take the two by four out of your own eye and then you will Interesting word here, diblepo, you will be able to see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If I were a neurosurgeon, a famous neurosurgeon, and your primary care physician referred you to me because you had a tumor on your brain, and you're going to die in three days if it is not taken care of. So you come into my office, you sit down. Um, we do our introductions, and then I say I've received the um, referral from your primary care. He sent the PET scan, the MRI, all the other tests, and uh, sure enough, you do have a uh, tumor on your brain, and you're going to die in three days, two and a half now, because you took a half a day to get here. You're going to die in a short period of time. My team and I have looked at that, and we realize that we've done this surgery hundreds of times before. And we have a 95 to 99.5% of success. The, the time we were not successful was when our anesthesiologist made a mistake. So we, we've replaced the anesthesiologist and so we've really raised the odds where 
we're almost 100% successful in the surgeries that we do nowadays. So, if we do the surgery, you have the opportunity to recover completely. And I have got a great team. Uh, my, especially my surgical no nurse, she is wonderful. She gives directions to me as I'm doing surgery. Because, you see, I'm blind, but don't worry about that because she is so precise in reading the CAT scan and the MRI and the PET scan that she can tell me two millimeters to the left, five millimeters deep, 45-degree angle that pulls out the core. Uh, she is wonderful at giving directions. Would you let me operate on you being blind? doing delicate surgery. Well, you probably figure this guy is blind. I'm just going to sneak out. He'll never miss me in the, in the process. We do not allow people to operate on us that have two-by-fours in their eye. And so it's really important for us to consider ourselves first and look at ourselves carefully before God in order to see if, in fact, we have any two-by-fours in our eye. And we all know that we do. So how do I do that? How do I step in front of the mirror in the morning when I first get up and my hair is all over the place like I struggled with somebody all night long uh, and my wife denies it's her so but you know I look and I think man there's I, I am not who I want to be I, I don't look like who I want to be um, how can I carefully examine myself and make some of those changes one of the premises that I have discovered in counseling is that faults come from unmet needs. Let me explain. A woman may go out and buy $5,000 worth of dresses to be more appealing to her husband because she senses that she is losing her husband's attention and affection, and she wants to be more pleasing to him and sure enough he really enjoys the new look the new wardrobe that she has dressed herself in and she looks very attractive until the bill comes at the end of the month for five thousand dollars he only makes four thousand a month and he explodes which even drives the wedge further apart between the two of them but he is not fault-free. Uh, he has a job as a plumber, and he's known in the neighborhood as Mr. Fix-It, and that if you have a uh, leaky faucet, you call him, he'll come over, he'll fix it. He's joyful about it, he loves to do it, uh, he receives all kinds of accolades from the neighbors when he does do it, especially the, the wives 
who really appreciate a leaky faucet being fixed. And they even call his wife and say, you're so blessed to have such a wonderful husband. I wish I had a husband like you have. And she feels like it's a knife stabbed into her and twisted because she's had a drippy faucet for five years and she's asked him to fix it hundreds of times to the point of knowing that she's nagging him and trying to get him to fix the leak as a simple act of kindness for her which, again, only drives the wedge in deeper in the relationship. He does not feel worthwhile to his wife, so he goes out and does things for the neighbors, and he gets the feeling of worthwhileness filled, at least for a while, until he needs to go out and fix another drippy faucet. She has a need to feel love from her husband. And that unmet need has produced in her a fault. She nags her husband. And she admits she nags her husband. So what we want to do is what are these unmet needs and identify them and how can we address them so that in careful consideration of ourself and thereby, if we take care of that, we can see clearly enough, we can have, if you will, discerning vision, uh, we can see through the smoke to where the fire is. Uh, that word in the Greek is where we get our word telescope. We can see through the atmosphere into the heavens and see the stars clearly. How can we then address those unmet needs? Let me give you four of them. The four core, need, core needs that you can look for next time you're standing in the front of the mirror asking God to reveal to you what causes the faults in your life. The first one is unconditional love. We all have a need to be unconditionally loved. And as we are working towards loving ourselves, we realize that God is the only one who can completely meet that need and never fail at it. That he loves us so much that he gave us his only begotten son in order to maintain the relationship and have it free flowing between us and him. The second one is worth, or to feel worthwhile. God says that he purchased us in, in, the, in the book of Peter, that we have been purchased with the priceless blood of God's Son. Well, if we've been purchased with something that's priceless, what does that make us? It makes us priceless. When I stand in front of the mirror and my hair is going every which way, um, and I don't have that much hair to go every which way, but it manages to do a pretty good job. I don't see myself as priceless. And part of that is maybe I'm judging myself 
by the world's standards and not by God's. Because God says, I'm priceless. And if I'm priceless, I can't become more priceless, nor can I become less priceless. I am priceless as a person. The third is security. And uh, Christians certainly have the advantage here over non-Christians because our security is in a person who says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'm with you always. Nothing will separate you from my love for you. Those are, are, are strong, true statements that if we base our security in our relationship with God and his declaration about who he is in relationship to us, then security is not based upon the world's values. It's not based upon the deeds that I do. Um, sometimes we feel more worthwhile because people approve us or uh, they accept us or they applaud us or they appreciate us. This is my A-list. Or they give attention to us or we achieve a lot or we have great appearances or, or uh, uh, our abilities are extraordinary. But the, all those are dependent on other people's declarations about us and they could change your mind. God does not change his mind in that he will always be our security and the fourth one we have love worth security purpose what is the purpose for a christian our brothers in christ uh, over at the presbyterian uh, church and uh, their catechism have one question of many that uh, is a good declaration of the purpose of man. And the question is, what is the chief end of man? Why does man exist? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God, in being glorified by us, we reflect to him his qualities, his fruit of the Spirit, if you will, in our lives back to him. We also enjoy fellowship with him because we're made righteous in Christ and we're led by the Spirit to fellowship with God and to enjoy him forever. And that is so important to who we are at the core If I am going to serve my neighbor motivated by God's love, I have to first discern the real needs of my life. Then I'm able to look past his faults to discern what's causing those faults in his life. And I get to serve him at the core not on the surface. The hurts, the hang-ups, the habits, the faults that I have are primarily, some of them are severe, but they're primarily the symptoms coming out. 
They're not the core issue. And when I carefully consider the core of who I am, and I begin to allow the Spirit of God to point those out to me, convict me, give me ways to uh, affirm what He says and motivate me to live in that way, empower me to live in that way, then my faults begin to go away. I begin to see that two by four being removed from my discerning vision. And when I start to deal with other people and I want to express the fruit of the Spirit to them like kindness, then I can see the core needs and address those and not spend all my time on the surface areas. And this takes time to develop in your life, in my life, because we keep exercising the freedom in Christ that we have to make bad decisions. That will, as long as we live in this body of flesh, that will continue to go on in our lives upon this earth. We will have faults, and we need to learn to carefully consider those, and then realize that they lead to service motivated by love, whether it's to ourselves, whether it's to other people, whether it's to God. Paul again addresses the Ephesians this time. And he says something interesting. He says, let all bitterness and, and, and their cousins, I call them cousins, let all bitterness, and by the way, bitterness forms when either you become critical or someone is critical toward you, plus you get hurt. And it's so easy to hurt someone or be hurt by someone with critical remarks. And especially in today's world, with all the social media we have, you don't even have to put your name on the line to criticize somebody. You can do it anonymously. And I've dealt with teenagers who are suicidal because someone said something untrue about them. It certainly was not addressing and trying to build those four core areas, love, worth, security, purpose, they were being mean and cruel and bullying, tearing them down instead of building them up. Because we live in a world where the deeds of the flesh are commonplace. There's factions, there's dissensions, there's strife, there's jealousy, there's outbursts of anger, there's immorality, there's impurity, there's uh, sensuality. I mean, there's Paul lists 15, 16, 17 of them. Uh, there's idolatry, there's sorcery. Um, you say, well, we don't practice sorcery. Well, sorcery, the word is pharmacia. And it's, yeah, it's drugs. That's where we get our word pharmacy from. And the magic arts practice drugs back in the day of Paul. It's not a new thing to have opiates that get you high and send you on a trip. Uh, those were things that were done in the flesh 
trying to meet a need but turned out to be a fault. So when we're looking at this bitterness where criticalness plus hurt is going to, or criticalness plus bitter, or hurt is going to equal bitterness, we cannot control people hurting us. We can try to get out of the way. We can duck. Um, uh, but if they want to hurt us, they'll figure out a way to do it. But we do control our critical response to them. And we do control if it's an outburst of anger or if we are jealous or if we say things that cause strife and factions and dissensions. And as we examine ourselves and we be who God wants us to be, love, worth, security, purpose, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as we be those things empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are finding out ways to deal with others hurting us that doesn't destroy us at the same time. And Paul looks at it here and he says, here's the things that bitterness causes. It causes wrath. Wrath is to boil, to simmer, to stew in your hurt. If that doesn't work, then you go to anger. Anger is expressed outwardly or inwardly. If we express it outwardly, we just wipe out everybody with our verbiage. Or if we express it inwardly, one of the definitions that we use in counseling is anger turned inward is depression. And it can come out in that way. So we have wrath, anger. If that doesn't work, then we go to clamor. Clamor is just making a lot of noise. Yelling, crying, or a combination of the two. But they're all designed to defend ourselves. And they will work for a moment, but then it brings greater grief as the way sin works into our life. So if we try to, out of our bitterness, handle it with wrath and, and anger and clamor, and that doesn't work, then the last two are vengeful things. Um, one is slander. And slander, vengeance-wise, is to harm another's reputation. It's to take and um, social media is very good at this. It's to take and destroy their character and to inflict that kind of um, hurt to them to get even with them is an expression of bitterness. If that doesn't work, then malice is to inflict injury. And it can be physical, it can be homicide, it can be um, um, emotional, it can be physical, uh, it can be um, psychological, uh, but you want to injure them to get even. And that really is the bottom line of bitterness and his cousins. And Paul says, 
don't put those on. What you want to do is three things, and you can do any one or combination or all three of those that are listed here, and do away with bitterness and its cousins. He says, be kind one to another. Be kind. You can't be kind and bitter at the same time. Back to what Paul was saying is the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, the spirit they fight, they war against it. They cannot penetrate. The, the Spirit will not allow the flesh to have control of your life if you're led by the Spirit. Be kind one to another. Be tender-hearted. Um, and, and I think Marlene's going to speak about gentleness down the road here, but be tender-hearted. Uh, a soft answer turns away wrath. Um, Proverbs is, is good, and it nails it perfectly, that if you want to deal with it, there's a way that Scripture says, God's Word says to deal with it. And be forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So if we carefully consider ourselves and we work on us first, we begin to remove the faults that control us through the power of the Holy Spirit by affirming God's declarations about us at the core, love, worth, security, purpose. We then are freed up because we take the two by four out of our own eye and we can discern, I call it discerning vision, we can look through the smoke screen, past the faults, into the life of the other person and see the core that's going on. Careful consideration of another that leads to service motivated by love. Kindness is a strong fruit manifestation of the Spirit. All of them are strong. All of them, empowered by the Holy Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, bring about so much change for good so that you can enjoy the life that God wants you to have. Don't underestimate the powerful ability to change the heart of man whether it's from bitterness or anger or hurt that kindness offers in the work working in our heart. Well, I think I've said enough for today to hopefully give you something to think about and to begin to consider in your own life and in your ministry to others that it starts by looking carefully, not rushing in, but looking carefully and then figuring out with the help of the Holy Spirit how to enter, how to serve another person's life motivated by love. And I pray that God will bless you as you go this week in careful consideration of yourself first, then others that leads to service motivated by love. Let's pray. I would like to pray a portion of Scripture as our prayer, and it's from Colossians 3, 
verses 12 through 17. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should forgive them. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body to be thankful. And, and let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing us one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. And whatever we do in word or deed, may we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you go this week, grow in grace and live in peace. God bless you.